0: Welcome back to another episode of Is Fitz Happy? I'm Luke. And I'm Emma. And this week we're discussing chapter nine of Ship of Magic, A Change of Fortunes. The beginning of this chapter, well this chapter in general, is broken down into three sections. First we have uh, Paragon, and then we have the majority of it, which is Kennet, and then a small after section of Wintrow. Yes. So we start with Brash in here. Coming up to Paragon. Paragon is... Is hearing some footsteps. Obviously, he cannot see because he is disfigured um from I Igro Igrit Igrit Igrit. Sure, we can go with Igrit. Know. That that works.
1: <laughs> or is that the way that we were pronouncing it wrong before? No,
0: I said ergot. Oh, before Igrit okay. Igrit. Yeah,
1: Ygrit?
0: We had one person chime in and say like, "I've always pronounced it the French like oh Igro at the end instead oh. of that." And I don't know. Igret, I'm good with that. <laughs> People will be annoyed either way. So yes. <laughs> we'll stick with Igret. <laughs> People will know who we're talking about. <laughs> but Igret had Paragon disfigured and uh, Kennet had to chop his eyes out when he was on board. So he cannot see anything and he hears footsteps approaching him and eventually Brashen speaks and he takes a little bit to place him but Paragon's like, oh, it's Brashen. Okay. Because he's thinking about who could be circling? Who could be coming up? It's probably not the kids because they're usually running around and throwing rocks. So, right. who is it this time?
1: But also in the discussion of is it, it can't be a child because they throw rocks, we learned that live ships feel oh, pain. Yeah. Yep. Um, he talks about how one of the um, hardest one of the hardest lessons he's learned is that whenever the children come to throw rocks, he has to not move at all because if he dodges, they get more enjoyment and stay for longer and keep throwing. And it's really hard for him because it doesn't hurt that bad, which implies that it does. He does feel some level of pain from being pelted by a rock.
0: Well, and later on he does recount the only live ship he knows that has died and was screaming as he sunk right. on fire. So. Yeah.
1: And so, and so he talks about how like, it's more just scary to, sit there with his arms crossed and do nothing with no knowledge of where any of the throws are coming from.
0: When one fears a blow and cannot know from what quarter it will come, it is hard not to try to guard one's face, even when all that is left of that face is a mouth and nose and the splintered wreckage that a hatchet has made of the eyes. So we're in Paragon's head here and he is extremely fatalistic about things right he's hoping you know he he knows that high tide is coming very shortly and he's dreams of a storm that will carry him out to sea and sink him once and for all a lot of things uh, and a lot of ways that he's imagining death or
1: kind of his demise right or his equivalent of death because he's not even sure wizard Wood could die right um we do like luke said we do have where he remembers the one live ship he ever knows that for sure died. And that is a ship that burned to death with hours of burning.
0: Tynester or Tynester had perished in a fire that spread swiftly through his cargo holds full of barrels of oil and dry hides, consuming him in a matter of hours, a matter of hours of the ship screaming and begging for help. The tide had been out. Even when the blaze holed him and he sank, salt water poured onto his internal flames. He could not sink deeply enough to douse the deck fires. His wizard wood self had burned slowly, with black greasy smoke that poured up from him into the blue sky over the harbor. But he had burned. Maybe that was the only possible peace for a live ship. Flames and a slow burning. He wondered that the children had never thought of that. Why did they fling stones when they could have set fire to his decaying hulk a long time ago? Should he suggest it to them sometime?
1: So this is obviously very sad, um, a very sad topic and sad that he is contemplating this. Yes. But also we know that part of this comes from the order that was given to him by Kenneth. Yep. And so it's hard to tell if that is this duty he feels towards Kenneth of how to best, enact on that or if this is also like his own depression it's really hard i think for me personally to grasp what level of humanity to give the ships the live ships in general especially paragon who we're in the head of i mean they feel pain they're humanoid (laughs) it's just I, i
0: consider them full full characters and full expressions of emotions to be honest yeah obviously they're different than humanity, but Paragon does feel love for Kennet. And it's not just out of duty, in my opinion. I think it's also out of the love. He was the only one he was bonded to really and felt comfortable around because thinking back on the history of the Paragon, he, I think I was trying to, I was reading up on this, his original owner and son died on his decks and he was quickened from that. And then the widow refused to see him ever after. So like, like vivatia, right. he was born into the world and no one from the family wanted to visit him. He was considered bad luck from that point on. Basically somebody, uh, it was given to a cousin cousin died. And eventually that cousin's brother took over and sailed for like 18 years or 18 voyages or something. And his son was Lucto, who married somebody from the Pirate Isles area, Mm -hmm. and they settled on Key Island and had Kennet. And then Igret made a, a trade deal or some sort of deal with the husband, and Igret, of course, betrayed them all and captured everybody and killed most people. And So Kennet's mother is still on the island, and Kennet was taken aboard. And Kenneth's really the only one that Paragon kind of opened up to after the whole first sinking and being traumatized from right. <laughs> being newly awakened in your family. He was the first like kid that he got to be around, really.
1: Right. So and-
0: I, I think it is truly like a, the true friendship bond of like, hey, he wants to bury this horrible past that was done by this pirate. I'm going to do him this favor because I my existence is nothing. So I think it's a bit of both depression and love for Kenneth.
1: Interesting. Okay. I think also thinking about his past in that context, it is probably part of the reason why he struggles so hard with his dragon parts of himself.
0: Right. Yeah. Um,
1: And maybe also it's because he is two different dragon bodies, but, but I bet that wasn't helped by the fact that he was neglected for so long.
0: Definitely his whole upbringing is very
1: tragic. <laughs> yes.
0: So he recognizes Brashen. Brashen kind of touches him on the elbow to let him know he's there. They shake hands. They go through a familiar conversation that kind of soothes Paragon's heart a little bit of like, why are you out here? I'm most unlucky person, uh, most unlucky ship. Brashen's like, oh, I've had the worst luck myself. So we're a match made in heaven, basically. Right. And asks for... Permission to come aboard and sleep and have shelter for the night.
1: There's also talk here about how time passes for Paragon. Yeah. He doesn't really, which isn't a surprise, but he doesn't really have a good grasp on how time flows. Obviously he's blind, which doesn't help. But when Brashen says it's only been a year or two, he's kind of surprised by that. And he's like, that's a long time for you guys, right? Which implies that he would think that it wasn't that long ago that he saw Brashin. And he always says, he says, I've been shored here for 30 or so of your years. Which again, it's like, so do live ships have their own way of counting? Do you think it's like...
0: I think he just holds himself apart from humans so Mm. much, right? So that he's just like, I am nothing... Like, I, I, I can't compare myself to you guys because I'm so different, you know? I, I think that's where it's coming from. So you
1: think this is, like, a Paragon unique thing, not all live yeah. ships? Yeah. Okay. Never mind, then.
0: I personally think so, at least.
1: I was just wondering if maybe they count years differently, like, our version of, like, dog years.
0: <laughs> <laughs> maybe. I mean, things are a bit different. Vivasha did comment on... Oh, what was, I don't remember her exact quote, but when she was talking to Wintrow about, you know, I've been around for generations already, but I'm just kind of being born kind of thing. Like what happens when you guys wither and die and I'm still here, that sort of stuff. So there is like a sense, a perception of them being long lived or eternal. Even we don't really know how long life ships can last, presumably forever. So I I feel like there is a different sense or understanding of the passage of time between live ships and humans. But I think Paragon specifically is trying to hold himself aloof from anything human because he has been shunned for so long.
1: Right. That's fair. And also the humans he has had had contact with weren't necessarily all amazing. Right. Right. (laughs) I can see why he'd want to be separate from that but he does allow Brashen to stay mm-hmm. where, um, this is part of the ritual that he is enjoying. And I think it's something that we see with Paragon a lot. Paragon likes patterns and he likes doing things ritualistically. And I think it soothes him and keeps him present.
0: It yeah. Seems. Just something familiar, but not the same, yes. you know, like something familiar to him that he can recall later or, you know, something that reminds him of a different time than just the present.
1: Yes. And so they go through their little, like, oh, I'm the unluckiest ship in the world. And Brashen says, I'm the unluckiest sailor in the world. It's great. So Brashen is on, and he does warn Brashin that there's going to be a lot more rot since the last time he was there. So to be careful on the deck.
0: Yeah. Bound to be a bit more rot than the last time you sheltered here. And he feels Brashin on his deck, scrambling, because... Paragon is tilted. Yes. And Paragon remarks on how it's kind of weird to have a man on deck after so long, probably a couple of years since Brashen was the last one here. Right. And Brashen is yelling up cheerily, saying, no more rot than the last time I was here. And there was damn little then. It's almost spooky how sound you are after all the weathering you must take. Spooky, Paragon agreed and tried not to sound glum about it.
1: It is really interesting to think about the fact that Paragon really has no concept of what's going on, even though he can feel in some ways. It kind of, I wonder if it's amplified by his own internal feelings and not just like the physical feelings, because he does talk about how he can feel the worms boring into the non-wizardwood parts of him. Yeah. And eating through, and how that like feels bad and it hurts and stuff. And I wonder if. Since that is the only thing to really keep him company here, if that just isn't magnified in a way. And that's why he thinks, oh, there's going to be a ton more rot, even though it's only been a year. I
0: think it's also his kind of depression, kind of hoping like, hey, I'm probably falling apart. <laughs>
1: that's fair, that's
0: <laughs> fair. I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, it, he is alone with just his thoughts for 30 years. And- yes kind of bound to focus in on any sort of, and, and blind, so you're bound to focus in on any other sensations you might have.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Brashen finds his hammock still in the same place he left it as the last time, and uh, that recalls a memory to Paragon of the last time Brashen was here, something that he holds fondly in his heart. Brashen taught him how to weave a net. He was drunk around a fire, and... <laughs> tried to teach paragon how to you know do something and and Brashen is like wow no one ever taught you that something like this before it's like yeah no no one has ever wanted to, like you're
1: making that seem as though Brashen was out of the kindness of his oh, heart no. asking no one ever taught you this he was like didn't no one teach you before angrily as he's trying to have paragon learn new knots <laughs> by feel alone because he is blind
0: that's true. It's true. So it,
1: well, it's not as nice as you had made it seem.
0: <laughs> Paragon replies, No, no one, at least nothing like this. When I was young, I saw it done, but no one ever offered me a chance to try it for myself, Paragon had answered. He wondered how many times since then he had dragged out the memory to pass the long night hours, how many times he had held his empty hands up before him and woven imaginary lines into the simple webbing of a hammock. It was one way to keep the deeper madness at bay. And the deeper madness I believe is the whispering that his two wizard wood dragons in his mind were like telling him and talking to him about, and the serpents that came up to him when he tried to sink himself before. Yes.
1: Um. Also I noticed that this is very similar to the stone game that Fitz uses to ground himself yeah, that's against true. the skill pull. And it, just reminded me of that imagery of it's this very repetitive thing that you have to, it's a pattern that you're trying to think about and focusing on that simple pattern keeps you on that instead of something else. It's a
0: good parallel. So Brashen is settling in here. Paragon's kind of taking stock and you know, Brashen can kind of sense how hungry for companionship Paragon is, but is extremely tired. So he's like, you know, just give me a few hours to sleep and I'll talk to you about all my trips since we've last talked Paragon in a bit. I just need to sleep right now. And Paragon's still taking comfort just from the little companionship of somebody sleeping on board is.
1: Yeah, it's incredibly sad. I mean, obviously Paragon is deeply lonely and does want companionship. And he just isn't able to have that. I don't think he really gets to be that way very often. Yeah.
0: It was not much for company, but it was more than Paragon had had for many a month. He folded his arms more comfortably across his bare chest and focused on the sound of brash and breathing.: Yeah, because all the other visitors are like Mingsley with the Chelseaan guy looking to buy or M- Mingsley is the Chelsea, David Restart with Mingsley. Yes talking about selling him and chopping him up and things like that. Yeah, so, or, children or children throwing children rocks. Throwing rocks.
1: Yeah, it's not great company to keep. But also I think it's really interesting that he and Brashen do have this sort of connection. They're both social outcasts and probably find some sort of solace in each other in that way. Right. But I do find it interesting that he does find solace in Brash and they do have a sort of deeper connection, at least that I'm reading into, especially because Brashin says that, he, or it says that Brashin could sense his longing for company. I think that's so interesting because Brashin isn't a Ludluck. And right. so it's interesting to see this sort of takeover. And we know that eventually Brashin takes over and Althea, um, but they and their children are going to be the ones to continue to sail on Paragon. And I can't believe we didn't think about it before, but we were talking before about could vivacious heart be turned to Kennet? And you had said no. And I was like, oh, I don't, uh, how would we ever know? Um, and I think it's really interesting because we have just that. There are still living Ludlucks, but we have Paragon who is sailing without a living relative. That's true. And who... Is like ends up staying with these other people who are not, uh, quote unquote, his family.
0: I don't know if it's different, but Kenneth does die on his deck and he does have Kenneth's memories in him after he was awakened. I don't know if that makes a difference, though. Like, so you does think he if, still have a family member with him then? Because Kenneth becomes a part of
1: Paragon. So you think if Vivacia had like, Althea die on her deck now that she's awake, then anybody no, could sell. Not,
0: her. not just on your deck, but like willingly take the memories from that person, like have an exchange like like Kennet and Paragon did.
1: Mm.
0: Theirs is a unique circumstance ish. I'm just throwing it right. out there of like maybe that counts as a family member to just not totally discount the family member theory.
1: Yeah. I don't know. And also, I mean, Paragon is kind of a weird case anyway right right. like this isn't
0: I, I mean the wiki that I was reading I don't remember this for a fact but the wiki I was reading about Paragon said it only took two family members deaths to awaken him so I don't know like if there was a third one there like a third three is a hard rule and the third one was somebody else not from the family which opens it up a little bit more or if two is I don't know Paragon just seems like an exception because he is the only one with two dragons as well Right. So I, I don't know.
1: You would think it would take more deaths to make yeah. him awaken you with would two think dragons. So. You would think so. Like six deaths instead of three. I don't know. Whatever. Maybe three isn't even a hard rule anyway. Yeah. Although they seem to know, Althea and her father seem to know that this would be the time his death would be the awakening of the ship.
0: Yeah. Three seems to be a pretty hard rule for every other live ship. Maybe. But that is just like the family quote unquote Deaths.
1: Yeah. So maybe,
0: like, the attack or whatever, a lot of sailors seeped into Paragon, you know? Yeah. If Paragon was just kind of accepting everybody. (laughs) It doesn't happen very often where people die in a live ship. True. I don't know. I don't know either. It's a weird thing that I don't think gets addressed.
1: No, I don't think so either.
0: But, yeah, it, it does make the case weaker for a family member has to be on board, but... I mean, it still makes it a lot easier.
1: <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Maybe it just is something that nobody's ever tried. Because why would you try it?
0: Right. That's why Kenneth is a visionary.
1: <laughs> maybe, maybe not.
0: Speaking of Kenneth, we get to Kenneth wooing Sorcor. He has uh, spent out a lot of his money, his saved money to dress up his captain's quarters, to buy opulent things when it's pretty much against Kenneth's grain to do so. He usually saves it for sensible things or has well made, finely crafted, but more dull and... You know, old money.
1: <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't say dull. I would say like smaller in yeah size.
0: I, I'm. I said dull, just kind of an opposite of like the shiny, opulent, like here's sure. my wealth kind of thing. Sure. More well stated and
1: the cut of the clothes, yeah. not necessarily the gaudy print.
0: Exactly. So he's kind of done away with that to fully deck out his captain's cabin as well as he could from Divi Town to impress Sorcor and to have a formal meal with him. It's only him, Sorcor, and the ship's boy who he soon dismisses because the ship's boy was just serving and setting up dinner, says they have wonderful like lamb shank and
1: really nice wine and the the vintage of the wine would be lost on Sorcor, but it was more because he knew Sorcor would know the price of it. Yes. Yeah. And also Sorkor, even though he hates dressing up and being formal, that didn't stop him from eating like three-fourths of the lamb shank, <laughs> yeah. apparently, which Kenneth comments on.
0: <laughs> he and Sorkor had disposed a sizable lamb's haunch between them. Sorkor had eaten most of it. Not even formality could curb his appetite when conf- confronted with any food a notch better than swill. Fair. <laughs> So yeah, it's uh, it's really just putting on a show for Sorkor here, and he's doing it because Sorkor he he mentions Sorkor is not only his right hand on deck but his sounding line for the crew's temper. So it's kind of a continuation of the previous conversations that he had with Sorkor about. You know, we want, I want to change the tack of what we're doing. I want to go into this different way. How is everyone going to feel about it?
1: Right. And yeah, just testing out if he can convince Sorcor this is a good idea. He can definitely convince everyone else.
0: Yeah, definitely. So uh, this dressing up of everything and and putting on the fancy meal and the wine and everything, he says they had the desired effect upon Sorcor. Beneath the awe in the mate's eyes were beginnings of a gleam of avarice. Sorkor needed but to be shown to desire. And they cheers, they toast to better things. Yes.
1: I also do want to mention, this is not an important detail, but it did make me laugh a little bit to imagine, that um, Sorkor's version of dressing up is a new shirt that is red and white striped silk, and then garish earrings that are... Mermaids with tiny pearls in their navel and green glass eyes. And I'm just wondering how big these earrings have to be. Maybe for at there, least a
0: couple inches. For
1: there to be a <laughs> tiny pearl, and also eyes that he can tell are like green glass. So that just the idea of giant mermaid earrings, I got a good kick out of that. I kind of want a pair. If anybody <laughs> knows any sellers on Etsy. <laughs> But they do cheer to better things. Kennet is in full schmooze mode.
0: Yes, and he's saying very soon. Soon we will have better things. Sorkor, of course, kind of knows something up. He's intelligent and Kennet knows he's intelligent. So he's like, you have something specific in mind. Kennet says only the ends, the means are still to be considered. And that's why I invited you to dine with me, that we might consider our next voyage and what we desire from it. Sorkor just basically says, I desire what I always desire just to get a lot of gold and wealth.
1: Rich booty and plenty of it. What else is there for a man to want?
0: And this is an opening for Kenneth to explain that there's much more that you could want. Power, fame, and security in one's riches. Comfort, homes and families safe from the slaver's whip. The last item had no place at all in Kenneth's personal list of desires. But well, he knew it was the fantasy of many a sailor. A fantasy he suspected they would find stifling were it ever granted to them. It didn't matter. What he was offering the man was what Sorkor thought he wanted. Kennet would have offered him sugared lice if he believed they had be a better bait. And without knowing it, Kennet kind of offers him the perfect hook for Sorkor to kind of get interested in discussing it with Kennet.
1: Right. But also, I wonder, why doesn't Kennet... Fear slavers or think that it's that big of a deal that slavers come by every now and again? Is he just accepting that's part of life or is this sort of like a whatever? I never had to deal with it, so it can't be that bad.
0: I think a little bit of both. One, yes, he's never had to deal with it. Sorkor kind of goes in on him a bit too because right. Sorkor's personal experience. Two, He specifically says homes and families safe from the slaver's whip. Kenneth doesn't have an interest in having a family that he has to go back to or be beholden to in any way. So I I don't think that's high on his list. And third, he brings up the profits that the slavers bring. So I I just think he's thinking about the wealth, the power, you know. Right. Shaping this Divi Town and and the Pirate Isles into something that he can control and what his vision is for it. So not necessarily... Not necessarily with empathy,
1: <laughs> right? And I guess that's something he lacks as a character, anyway. I just think it's so interesting, given his background, where he was little better than treated as a slave on Igrit's Igit. Oh my gosh, Igrit, Urgit, Erg- no, Igrit, no, Igrit. Okay, <laughs> this is gonna mess me up forever. He was treated as little better than a slave on Igret's ship. And so I find Often it interesting. Worse. Yes, and I <laughs> find it interesting that he can't take from that and be like, "Yeah, I hope that never happens to anyone else." But also, it is Kenneth that's asking a lot of right. that character, I guess.
0: Now there, there's of course it's a Kenneth section. So there's lots of talk of the emotions that people are portraying their words with, and his careful calculations of what he portrays. So next, he says that Sorcor affected a. Clumsy nonchalance. So it's more wording from Hobb just to say that Kenneth sees right through Sorcor. Yes. You know, to the soul of who he is.
1: And that he's just not as sophisticated.
0: Yeah. And he's proven wrong a little bit, but, <laughs> but it doesn't phase him later.
1: Right. So Sorcor's rebuttal is that you have to be born into that lifestyle. That isn't yeah. something a man can just choose to do. And Kenneth disagrees. He says that it's something that you have to reach out and take for yourself.
0: Lords and nobles, you say, and a man has to be born to it, you say. But somewhere there had to be the first lord. Somewhere back there, there had to be some common man who reached out and took what he wanted and kept it, too. Sorkor took another drink of his wine, slugging it down like beer. I suppose, he conceded. I suppose those things all had to get started somehow. How, he finally asked, as if fearing he wouldn't like the answer.
1: And Kenneth tries to play with the words and be fancy and say, well, you have to reach out and take it. And Sorcor doubles down and says, yeah, but how? (laughs) Okay, enough of that. Like, tell me the plan. And Kenneth's idea is that it's no different than how they get their wealth as they have it now. It's just a different scale. We'll be setting our goals a bit higher, as his exact quote. Which did make me think that Kenneth has his own little uh, vision board (laughs) (laughs) in his back compartment or something, and he's like, "All right, and here's me on a uh, throne with a crown." And (laughs) you just gotta put it on your vision board, Sorcor,
0: manifest it. Manifest. (laughs) And Kenneth is remarking that Sorcor is kind of shifting nervously at this, and. He says when he spoke his deep voice had gone almost dangerously soft. What do you have in mind? Kenneth smiled at him. It's very simple. All we must do is dare to do something no one has dared to do before. So Kenneth is dancing around the whole th- conversation that they had previously, and Sorcor is just immediately like, You're talking about that whole king stuff, right? Like no one is gonna go for it.
1: Pirates and, don't want a king.
0: Yeah, pirates don't want a king. Kenneth forced his smile to remain. He shook his own head in response to his mate's charge. As he did so, he felt the blistered flesh underneath the linen bandage break anew. The nape of his neck grew wet with fluid. Fitting. Fitting. No, my dear Sorokor, you took my earlier words much too literally. What do you suppose that I see myself sitting on a throne, wearing a gold crown covered with jewels while the pirates of Divy Town bend a knee to me? Folly. sheerest folly. No man could look at Divy Town and imagine such a thing. No. What I see is what I have told you, a man living like a lord, with a fine house and fine things, and knowing he will keep his fine things, and fine house, yes, and knowing his wife may sleep safely at his side, and his kiddies in their beds as well. He took a measured sip of his wine and replaced the glass on the table. That is kingdom enough for you and me, eh, Sorkor? Me? Me too? There, it was reaching him at last. Kennet was proposing that Sorcor himself could have these things, not just Kennett. I want to stop quickly there to first, quick aside, go back to his bandage breaking. So this is at least a day after the last time we left Kennett, who was leaving uh, Betel's Bagneo, walking away from Etta, getting a tattoo. He has already burned it off.
1: Yes, and I believe the fitting remark is that That is his shame of getting it wrong the first time. Yes. And so it's fitting that that should blister as he's being reminded of the failure of the last conversation. Mm -hmm. But he is a lot more successful this time.
0: Because, again, we noted this before in his last conversation with Sorcor, he easily backs off of what he has said and then dances around it to go at a different angle again, saying, oh, no, you took me literally. Yes. And just like the last conversation of like, you know, some people say it with these big words, but I like to speak much yes. more plain and uh-huh. says it a different way. So
1: gaslight him queen.
0: Yeah. So <laughs> Kenneth is is going like, no, 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 no. I know pirates don't like kings. Duh. Obviously, I know that, too. I'm I a would, man of the people. Yeah.
1: I would never insist. <laughs> no, I just
0: think we could be like a king and lords and live. He he specifically (laughs) doesn't use king except in the disparaging tone of like, well, you think they're going to bend the knee to me? We could live like lords. Yes. He goes more towards like, we're just powerful people with a lot of money and safety.
1: Yes. Instead of one person is ruling them all.
0: And then relates it to Sorcor. I mean, it's a brilliant manipulation tactic to go down. He knows Sorcor very well. He underestimates them in some aspects. Yes. But, That's because he lacks empathy to even understand where Sorkor might be coming from. Right. So he misses like the slavery part, but he really hits on everything else that Kenneth himself feels like the greed and the want for more and things like that. He can really appeal to that in his first mate.
1: But not, I think it's not only the greed that's getting to him. I think it's also the idea of safety. I think hundred percent. And I think wanting to settle down in a family. Yes. I think Kenneth is thinking that the greed is what's getting to him, but I don't think it's necessarily the greed. I think it's more, of the idea of safety. I feel like that is what's pulling more at Sorkor's heartstring and also the idea of slavery not being an issue anymore. I think Kenneth doesn't realize how much that is also affecting this conversation.
0: Yeah. We we will talk about it later too, but Sorkor kind of brings up like, if you do this, then they'll get you on your side more. And Kenneth's like, nah, no,
1: and yeah. he's wrong.
0: <laughs> right. Sorkor right. So anyways, It's kind of getting through to Sorkor that he could have this as well. And Kenneth is like, what? You think I would ask you to throw in with me as you have done before? Would I ask you to risk everything alongside me if I only had my fortunes in mind to improve? No, of course not. You're not such a fool to think that. What I have in mind is that we'll do it together.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Me. Yes. I absolutely think that's what you planned.
0: He says, no man will be forced to throw in his hand with ours. No, it will be a free alliance of free men. So again, playing on the we have no leaders. We just want to be richer.
1: And emphasizing freeness. Yes. The free men are choosing freely their own choice. And I think that also is like a big winning factor for mm-hmm. Sorkor.
0: So af- after asking like a, a direct question to Sorkor, so what say you? Sorkor kind of looks away from Kenneth's eyes and he has to look around the opulent room, which is what Kenneth planned. So, in the depths of his soul, Sorkor was more cautious than Kenneth had anticipated. So, this is where Kenneth kind of first underestimates him. Yes. And he says something that I specifically wanted to highlight and read out because it really shows Sorkor is way more intelligent. And self-aware than a lot of any other pirate is kind of given right. an opportunity to be like a character in general. He says, you speak well, and I cannot think of a reason not to say yes, but I know that does not mean that there isn't a reason. Speak plainly. What must we do to bring these things about? So he understands. He he He's aware that he doesn't have all the answers. He doesn't know everything. He might not be on the same level as Kenneth, but he's aware enough to know this sounds nice, but I know there has to be a catch.
1: Honestly, right now, Sorkor is my favorite character, and he should give this conversation to Kefria so that she can think about that next time <laughs> she's disagreeing with Kyle. We're yeah. like, well, you're speaking really well, but I still know that there's something wrong with it. I just don't know what.
0: <laughs> it's, it's a perfect parallel, actually, yeah. because. Kenneth. Chose Sorcor because he wanted somebody competent, and is trying to manipulate in the same way that Kyle chose Kefria because he wanted someone complacent, yeah. <laughs> and is manipulating him. But like because of that choice, they fight back in different ways. Yes. Kefria not at all.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but she still has the wherewithal to know, like, oh, maybe he isn't right, but he just yes. speaks so well. How could I not trust him? Exactly. Yeah. And, whereas Sorcor, I think does the important thing of Question. admitting questioning and also admitting that he doesn't know, which I think is really big. I wish more real life people would do that. I think <laughs> yeah. it's actually a really good thing to be like, you know what? I like what you're saying on in theory, but I have no knowledge of this topic. So I don't really want to make any heavy comments.
0: <laughs> yeah. The, the, just the sentiment in general is, is really well said here. I like it a lot. So I wanted to highlight that about Sorcor. So he he directs the question back to Kenneth, like, I'm not going to say yes right now. Speak plainly to me. What do we have to do before I just say yes? Right. And Kenneth is like, we have to do something big. We have to dare. And Kenneth's like, I have the man, even if he doesn't know it himself. Because Kenneth truly believes in himself that he can get through anything. He's not even phased by Sorcor really questioning him more But he's a little like, oh, I underestimated him briefly, but that's okay. I have a ton more to talk about on this subject.
1: And I mean, to be fair, people don't ask questions about something they're not interested in. Right, yeah. And his answer didn't say that he is absolutely hardline no on it anymore. So, like, I think he's right. And I think that is coming from a place of having experience haggling or just negotiating with Mm -hmm. people. You kind of get a read on how to tell when a person is you've you're in the, the end stretch. Like I'm going to be able to convince this person versus back on the other conversation they had. he could tell at this point in the conversation that he wasn't going anywhere. Right. And so I think this is a really interesting to see how good Kenneth is at actually reading people in some ways. Like we do talk about how he's like obviously missing some empathy and, not exactly, like I don't know who knows how good his descriptions are, but <laughs> about himself, He's I suppose, fairly
0: accurate in general, though, about other people,
1: yeah, how the actions are playing out, it seems as though he might not be far off,
0: yeah, so Kenneth lays out a scenario to Sorcor here and lays out what we kind of talked about his goals were before, and this is where the whole wealth and trade you know tariffs come in, so says pretend you're a merchant you're in Jamalia or the Southlands and you want to bring cargo up through to Bingtown or Chalcedon in the lands beyond you either have to risk the outer seas around the pirate isles or go through the fastest way through the pirate isles right now it's risky because we're pirates right outside is risky because it's you could just get caught in a storm and lose everything and there's serpents in both. Sorkor brings that up. He's like, what about the serpents? He's right. like, yeah, the serpents are bad in both. So it doesn't really affect which one you take. What if I told you you were a merchant skipper and you had faced with this choice, but I, a, a man comes up to you and says, sir, for a fee, I can see you safely through the inside passage. And I have a pilot who knows the channels and the currents like the back of his hand. And not a pirate will molest you on your way. What would you say? And Sorco is like, well, what about the serpents? He's very worried about the serpents.
1: Yes, and and, and, <laughs> and Kenneth says, you know, like, well, we could hire ship a uh, ship to follow along that just is archers taking down the serpents, or they're a problem in both sides, so they're going to have to deal with it either way. Yeah. What if one uh, one way is a little bit more safe though?
0: Yeah. So Sorco narrows his eyes and he's like, okay, I'd say, how much does this is this going to cost me? Because yeah, it's a great deal. Yeah. But. There's that price on there. So he's like, okay, what's this gonna cost me? And that's where Kenneth knows he has them as well. So he's like, exactly. I'd name you a fat price and you'd be willing to pay it because you'd just add that fat price to your goods at the end of your run because you'd know you'd get through safe to sell those goods. Paying a fat price for that assurance is much better than sailing free and taking a big chance you'll lose it all. Sorcor immediately says it wouldn't work. And he explains that like the other pirates would just kill you and Take all the money like they would just attack you and he asks why would they sit back and let you have all the money and kind of gets to explain because they would get a cut of it one and all every ship that came through would have to pay into a treasury and everyone would get a cut of that treasury plus we'd make them promise that there'd be no more raids against us or our towns. Our folk could sleep peaceful at night, knowing that their daddies and brothers would be coming home safe to them, and that there'd be no satraps' boats coming to burn their towns and take them as slaves. He paused. Look at us now. We waste our lives chasing their ships. When we do catch one, then it's bloodshed and mayhem, and sometimes for naught. Sometimes the whole ship goes down, cargo and all. Or sometimes we battle for hours, and what do we get? A hold full of cheap cotton or some such trash. And then... He explains like, you know, meanwhile, satrap soldiers and ships are taking our villagers as slaves and sending them off. Really kind of painting the picture and latching on to this whole part that Kenneth really doesn't care about. But he knows most pirates do about that sense of safety, about the slavers and everything like that. And that does hook Sorcor
1: Right. Because there is this sense of, futil- of futility, right? We have... The pirates who, to make a living, to be able to live on the pirate isles, these outcasts get together and they chase after ships and risk their lives doing it and sometimes get nothing. Yeah. And while they do that, they have slavers coming to their shores to take them back or to take new people. Yeah.
0: And and, and the big thing about the the idea that kind of presents that Sorkor latches on is when he says... Instead of risking our lives to attack every tenth ship that comes through, and perhaps come up with nothing, we'd get a cut of every cargo on every ship that passed through our waters. We'd control it all. At no risk to our lives, save what any sailor must face. Meanwhile, as our home and families are safe, the riches we garner, we keep to enjoy. An idea dawned slowly in Sorkor's eyes. And we'd say no slavers. We could cut the slave trade's throat. No slave ships, no slavers could use the inside passage. Kenlit, Kennet knew a moment's dismay. But the fattest trade could to be fleeced is the slaves' trade ships. They'd be the ones that would pay the most to get through fast and easy, with their cargo alive and healthy still. What percentage of their wares do they get through men? Sorcor interrupted harshly. Women and kiddies. Not wares. If you'd ever been inside one of those ships. And I don't mean on the deck. I mean inside, chained up in a hold. You wouldn't say wares. No. No slavers, Kenneth. Slavers made us what we are. If we're going to change that, then we start by doing to them what they've done to us. We take their lives away. Besides, it's not just that they're evil. They bring the serpents. The stink of the slave ships is what lured the serpents into our channels in the first place. We get rid of the slave ships, maybe the serpents will go too. So he explains a little bit more that they bring disease, things like that, and just finishes on no. No slavers. Right. And Kenneth just has to say all right then no slavers and he says he'd never suspected sorkor to had an idea in his head let alone that he'd felt so passionately passionately about something A miscalculation he looked anew at sorkor the man might have to be discarded not just yet and perhaps not for some time but at some point in the future he might outlive his usefulness kennett decided he must keep that in mind and make no long-range plans based on sorkor's skills And then just smiles at him and agrees with him.
1: Right. First, I do want to talk about how it's a little concerning (laughs) the way Kennet talks about slaves. He does talk about them as though they are cargo, just cargo, just a different kind of livestock even. So, of course, you would fleece them for money because who cares? And it's really hard to read somebody who thinks so little of human life. Um, but I'm also in awe of Sorcor for standing up to this point. And I think it's in, it's amazing that he had the idea in the first place to say, no, uh, let's just not ever let slavers come through, which is more brave than like 90% of the traders the at the, or old <laughs> traders, I guess, yeah. in Big Town. And here he is given the opportunity to be a leader. And he's like, Okay, we're gonna get rid of one of the most horrible things to happen on this planet, and it's slavery. We're gonna stop that right now, and I think that's really big of him to like. That's what he's sticking his now his neck on the line for, because I'm sure Sorkor knows how dangerous it is to go against Kennet in any way. Kennet is a pirate too. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's big that he he's like this is something I believe in, and I don't think it's right, and we're gonna stop it from happening.
0: And Kenneth basically just agrees because he has to he has to have Sorcor on board with yes. him. Like he needs Sorcor to handle the rest of the crew and kind of direct everything. Right. And he he finishes it like, yes, you're right. Of course, yeah, no slavers, that's fine. We just can't tell anybody about anything, anything about this right now. Because, you know, other pirates might want to be the first ones to try it, and there's gonna be a free for all. We have to get people to follow us and follow our decision first. So Sorcor, from this point of saying, like, no slavers and having that agreed upon by his captain feels like he's more of an equal at this table in this discussion. And so he's kind of contributing back to this whole conversation of not just questioning, like, speak plainly. What do we have to do? It's like, OK, then then where do we get people to follow us? Like how what's right. the next step? And Kenneth says, finally. The question he had been leading him to ask. Kennet came swiftly back to the table. He forced himself to pause for the drama of the moment. He's so dramatic. He's such a theater kid. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, we make them believe we can do the impossible by doing things all others deem impossible. Such as, say, capturing a live ship and using it as our main vessel. Sorkor scowled at him. Kennet, old friend, that's crazy. No wooden ship can catch a live ship. They're too fleet. And we go through this whole superstition of like, you know, they, they'll cry the channel to their steersmen and, you know, they're unpredictable. You need someone from the family on them. Otherwise, they'll kill everyone. Like, what's that one ship? The pariah. Right. That's what happened with the pariah. Yes. And Kenneth just kind of chimes in like it was the Paragon. And yes, I know all the myths and legends about live ships.
1: And the, his own family members do indeed call him the pariah now. Mm hmm. Which means that he has been kind of keeping tabs on Paragon, which is kind of cute. <laughs> that like, I, I don't know. I shouldn't say that he's like this murderous dude that like <laughs> literally doesn't even think slavery is that bad. But, <laughs> but I mean, it's good that the like one positive influence on his life. Maybe it's more because he doesn't want him to sail again and blab about everything, so he has to keep. Never mind. That made it less cute. Just A thinking bit of about, both. I think. Yeah. <laughs>
0: He's still a selfish person. Right.
1: But I also want to mention that in this conversation, before he talks about going after the live ship, it is mentioned that Kenneth refills Sorcor's full glass of wine to full again and just simply tops up the one sip he has had of his wine. So he is definitely trying to get Sorcor a little drunk so that he's a little bit more amenable to. It seems to be his,
0: working because he's also standing up for himself more than he probably was. I mean, would. hey, yeah,
1: that's true. <laughs> backfired a little i guess
0: Kenneth says here then yes he's called the paragon i know all the old myths and legends but that's what they are myths and legends i believe a live ship could be taken and could be used and if the heart of the ship could be won over you'd have a vessel for piracy that no other ship could stand against it's true what you say about the currents and the winds and live ships true also that they can sense a serpent long before a man can spot him and cried out to the archers to be ready a live ship would be the perfect vessel for piracy and for charting out new passages through the pirate isles or battling serpents. I'm not saying we should forsake all else and go hunting a live ship. I'm just saying that if one comes our way, instead of saying there's no use in pursuing it, let's give it a chase. If we win it, we win it. If not, well, plenty of other ships get away from us. We'll have lost no more than we had before. Why a live ship? Sorkor asked bewilderedly. I don't get it. I want one. That's why. Well then, I'll tell you what I want. For some odd reason, Sorkor thought they were striking a bargain. I'll go along with it. We'll chase a live ship when we see them, though I don't see much use to it, not that I'll admit that to the men. In front of the men, I'll be as hot to go after them as a hound on a scent. But you make me this balance. For every live ship we chase, we go after the next slaver we smell. And we board them, and throw the crew to the serpents, and see the slaves safe back to a town. No offense to your judgment, Captain, but I think that if we stop enough slavers and do away with the crews, we'll gain the respect of the others a lot faster than by capturing a live ship. Kenneth did not mask his scowl. I think you overestimate the righteousness and morality of our fellows here in Divi Town. I think they'd be as likely to think us soft-headed fools to waste our time pursuing slavers only to free the cargo. And Sorcor takes him through, like, what it actually means to be a slave, but this is the big time that... Kennet underestimates Sorcor. This is truly what does win the hearts over to Kennet.
1: Right, and Sorcor does know what he's talking about, probably because he has a little bit more humanity than Kennet. But either way, he is right, like you said. And I think it's really interesting that Kennet is surprised that Sorcor is treating this like a negotiation, when Kennet himself has been making it seem like. That's what this is, that this it's is an free men yeah. getting together with other free men to make choices and never he distanced himself from that king title. So it's really interesting to see him so put off by Sorkor forgetting his place, so to speak, <laughs> when that's the vibe he's been selling.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah.
1: So I don't know. I just found that really interesting that he's so upset about it. And he does begrudgingly agree.
0: I, I do like the uh, the very uncharacteristic response to probably surprise that Sorkor. Ask why why a live ship? I'm yes. just saying, I I just want one. I don't yeah. know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if that was his response because he didn't want to fully give Sorkor anything. Yes, yeah. yeah. he just hadn't planned on that
0: question, and so it's like he oh. has his reasons, of course. But yeah, I don't think he has a way to deflect, and it just kind of surprised him. Yeah. Yeah, every time a, a live ship is chased, they have to go after a slaver. And Sorkor gets into why he feels so vehemently about slave ships, about how he was captured a slave, that he wasn't meant to be a pirate. He didn't want to be a pirate. He was kind of forced into it because he was a slave and forced to work in, in a shop that, you know, saw men coughing blood.
1: A tanner's pit. A
0: tanner's pit, Yeah. Coughing blood from all the chemicals and the smokes and things there. And one night he killed two men and escaped and had nowhere else to go. So he became a pirate.
1: It's really interesting when he talks about the options that were available to him. He says when he escaped, he could have gone north. But it's all ice and snow and barbarians, which is interesting because I believe this is not just like the mountain people. This, this is, is like also six the six duchies that yeah. he's like, no, they're crazy barbarians. I'm not going there. And then he could go back to the South to Chalced, which I think implies that's where he's from originally. Uh, he
0: doesn't say Chalced anywhere in here.
1: Well, he says back South where a tattoo would mark me as an escaped slave.
0: Could be Jamalia as well.
1: Oh, I suppose. Yeah. Because they also have slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so So the area he's from, he can't go there because they'll know he's a slave. And anyone could take advantage of that fact by knocking him out and taking him to his old owner and getting a payday. And the cursed shores he could go to, but then he'd have to live like an animal until some demon drained his blood. So, no, he didn't want to do that either. And the only thing left was the pirate isles and a pirate's life. But it's not what I would have chosen, Kenneth given the chance to choose. There's damn few here that would have chosen this. For every live ship we chase, we run down a slaver. That's all I'm asking. I give you a shot at your dream. You allow me one at mine.
0: Fair enough. Kenneth declared brusquely. He knew when the final bargain had been set out on a table. Fair enough then for every live ship, a slaver.
1: And they make the deal. Mm -hmm. And it's the deal that wins Kenneth the throne.
0: Yeah. Because both things happen.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, it's really interesting because Kenneth really is underestimating human nature, I think.
0: Yeah. The power of empathy is very strong. Right. And Kenneth doesn't understand that.
1: Yes. And the idea that people who were also, I mean, the people who come to the pirate Isles are people that are very down on their luck, that have nowhere yeah. else to turn. They feel as though they can't go home and they... They can't go anywhere else either. So they're here. And most of them are slaves or are family members of slaves. Or running from jail or something. Yes. Yeah. Or running from becoming a slave. You know, like there's a lot of the slavery in the history of this place. And so I think that is why so many people are touched. And on top of that, even the people who don't care, they're going to be outnumbered because you're bringing people that you have saved into the town and
0: it's going to create loyalty. I'm, I'm surprised he didn't look at it like this. Cause he, I am, and I'm not surprised. So he went in very calculating to get his own crew loyal to him by doing various things and being very calculating and manipulative But he doesn't see the slaves as people. He sees them as wares. So he doesn't think that by freeing them, he would create loyalty. He just sees it as like this is useless. They're just slaves.
1: I wonder if it's not even that. So my point of view isn't necessarily that he doesn't see the slaves as people. It's more that the way he won his crew was with, number one, getting them a lot of goods that cost a lot of money. So they make a lot. of so greed. And number two, being ruthless and killing other people that stood in their way. It's Those true. are the two things that won them over. And I think that fits with his personal narrative of what are important to people is power and greed and like money. And so he can't imagine a world where someone would just simply be grateful that you got them out of a bad situation enough to the, where they would follow you. He thinks you have to prove that you're the strongest in, a, in something that's more I guess manlier or just that gives them profit immediately and doesn't see that people would be grateful in that way. So it mm-hmm. feels, I don't even know if it's about him not seeing slaves as humans. I think it's more only thinking about things through his personal lens of what would make him follow somebody. Which he wouldn't ever do. <laughs> but, <laughs> And also his low view on the people in general of they're so simple. They just need money to follow.
0: Well, that ends Sorcor and Kennet's section with a bargain struck. And we move on to Wintro, who has a bargain taken away from him.
1: Yes. And we find Wintro at home off of the ship. This is the next day. This is after Althea has come home. <laughs> But Althea is not there. It is just Wintro, his grandmother, his mother, and his father. And they are at one end of the table, and he is at another. And he says it feels like they're a council getting ready to judge him. And maybe that is what this is, but he wants to convince them that he does not need to be on this ship.
0: Yeah, so we kind of come in media rest to this section. They've obviously already told him that... He's going to be on the ship and he's has to leave the monastery, the the priesthood. And he's kind of pleading his case right now saying, you know, you sent me off to, to be a priest. It was not my choice. I didn't want to go. I begged you, mom. Like he recounts all of these kind of sad stories of when he was leaving. And then he kind of next paragraph, he kind of says, I did what you told me to do. I left here and went off with a stranger. The way to the monastery was hard, and when I got there, everything was foreign, but I stayed and I tried. And after a time, it came to be my home, and I realized how correct your decision for me had been. I love serving Saw. I've learned so much, grown so much, in ways I cannot even express to you. And I know I'm only at the beginning. That is all just starting to unfold for me. It's like—he fumbled for a metaphor. When I was younger, it was like life was a beautiful gift— wrapped in exquisite paper and adorned with ribbons. And I loved it, even though all I knew of it was outside the package. But in the last year or so, I finally started to see there is something even better inside the package. I'm learning to see past the fancy wrappings to the heart of things. I'm right on the edge. I can't stop now. And Kyle just chimes in, it was wrong. And wintrow for a brief second, has his heart sore in hope. And Kyle just repeats, it was wrong to send you off. It was your mother's idea.
1: I feel really bad for Winter on this for a lot of reasons, but also just reading from the point of view of a child who wants to be a little bit more grown up and is talking about how hard it is to talk to adults who disagree with you and how he hates how, Childish, He's coming off. He's, right. His voice is wavering. He feels like he's going to cry and he doesn't want to do that because he knows that's not very adult of him, which is not fair because he isn't an adult. And honestly, I am an adult and I still cry whenever I have to argue. So, like, it's OK with. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you're just a crier. That's how life <laughs> works. But he's struggling so hard and it feels so real. It feel it really reminds me of when I was a kid and my parents were doing something unfair. Usually it wasn't me trying to get to a monastery, but I still feel like it is very relatable to have this feeling of like, I just want to prove to them that I'm more grown up and prove that like I'm making a good decision. And maybe if I just Give them all the facts and show them how much this means to me. They'll change their mind. And he even talks about how while he's giving this speech, there's in the middle, he's looking at each family member and trying to find some little hint of sorrow or feeling like they're doing something wrong and he can't really find it.
0: He says his mother was the only one to show any signs of uneasiness He kept trying to catch her eye to make her speak her thoughts, but her gaze slid away from him to his father. The man looked as if he were carved of stone.
1: Right. And I think it's really interesting. This makes me think of Althea whenever she deals with the family too, That there's this looking for somebody is getting this, like looking for a reaction from somebody that's like, they know that they're in the wrong. They have to know I'm going to play to that. I need to find that. And, That really makes me think about Thea. But here we have Wintro really trying to plead with them. And Kyle just gives him, it was wrong of us to send you. Mm -hmm. And of course, puts the blame on his wife as though he had no hand in the matter at all. It's like,
0: yeah, against my instincts, we sent you off. And I knew it was a bad idea. I should have trusted my instincts. And now we have to, you know, it's proved it was a bad decision now. So now we have to take you back. Selden's too young to be a ship's boy. Two years, even one year from now, maybe I could take him on. But we all need to endure this without complaining and deal with the pain of correcting this mistake.
1: He specifically, Kyle specifically says, we all brought this on ourselves, including Wintro in that we all. Which makes me super upset for two reasons. One, Wintrow was a child and was forced to go against his will. He very clearly did not want to go at first. Yes, he found it to be a place that he really enjoys. Wintrow has no say in this decision. So get out of here with that. We all need to uh, suffer for this decision we made. Second of all, he just got done saying it's not his fault this happened. It was Kefria's fault because she made the decision. But now we're all going to pay. It just... uh, I hate Kyle. I hate him. I hate (laughs) everything about him.
0: (laughs) He says, yeah, we all have to endure the pain of correcting the mistake. It means that you women will have to manage on your own here for yet another year. Somehow our creditors must be made to wait and you must do whatever it takes to wring a profit out of our holdings. Those that cannot be made profitable must be sold to shore up those that can. It means another year of sailing for me and a hard year where we will have to sail fast and traffic in what is that which is most profitable. And for you, Wintro, it means a single year in which I must teach you all you should have learned in the last five. A single year for you to learn the ways of a man and a sailor.
1: I think this is really interesting. Why do you think he's saying it's he only has one year to teach Wintro? What does that mean?
0: So, I from this reread, I think it's pretty obvious that Kyle means to be the captain of the ship off the ship, ultimately. He means to be like the director of the fleet. Mm. He wants to manage all of the the housing as well as right. have his men captain the ship and Wintro's just aboard and be an actual be a crew member, right? So yeah. his goal is to teach Wintro on this trip, get a lot of profit to make them comfortable enough so he can come back to shore and then they can the rest of the crew can continue to go and Wintro isn't a detriment.
1: But does he plan to make Wintrow a captain then? Or he just wants...
0: Not right away, that's for sure. But he is probably, you know, he's 13. So Kyle says, I have a year to make you into what you should have been learning to be in the last five, right? So he doesn't want him to be an embarrassment. He wants to be fine leaving him alone. Wintrow's probably old for a ship's boy anyways. So right. he needs to make him a sailor because he is a vest and a haven, you know? Doesn't he's want to both. be an embarrassment okay. to anything.
1: Okay. Well, either way, this is Captain Kyle at his finest is essentially what Wintrow calls it, that this is clearly him and his element. He is ticking things off of his fingers of what needs to be done and what's going to happen next. He's commanding everyone in the room and Wintrow mentions that he's in for a nasty surprise because this isn't the ship and there is someone here to go against his word. And that's him.
0: Wintrow stood pushing his chair back carefully. I am going back to the monastery. I have little to pack and all I can do here. I have done. I shall be leaving today. He looked around the table. I promised Vivacia when I left her this morning, that someone would come down to spend the rest of the day with her. I suggest you wake Althea and ask her to go. His father's face reddened with instant rage sit down and stop talking nonsense he barked you'll do as you're told that'll be your first lesson to learn winter thought the beating of his heart was making his whole body shake was he afraid of his own father yes it took all the defiance he could muster to remain standing he had nothing left to speak with yet even as he met his father's glare and did not look away even as he stood still and silent as the furious man advanced on him a cool and particular part of himself observed Yes, but it's only physical fear of physical things. The notion caught up his whole mind in its web. So he paid no attention to his mother crying out and then shrieking, Oh, Kyle, no, please, please don't. Just talk to him. Persuade him. Don't. Oh, please don't. And his grandmother's voice raised in a command, a fierce shout of, This is my home and you will not. And then the fist hit the side of his face, making a tremendous crack as it impacted so fast and so slowly he went down amazed or ashamed that he had neither lifted a hand to defend himself nor fled and all the time somewhere a philosophical priest was saying physical fear ah i see but is there another kind and what would that have to be done to me to make me feel it and he passes out
1: losing consciousness felt like he was sinking down into the floor becoming one with it as he had with the ship save the floor thought only of black darkness. So did Wintro. He's out. And we have one of the more vile things of Kyle, at least the first vile thing. As of yet. Yeah, (laughs) as of yet. The first vile thing he has done in front of Veronica. The way Wintro responds and the way Kefria responds kind of hints that this is not the first time he's laid hands on his children, at least not Wintro. I don't know if he's done anything to Kefria. I feel like she's pretty complacent and would never, I don't know, back talk him enough to make him angry enough to do anything to her. Although with people like people who use physical violence, I don't know if that's even necessary. Either way, not OK. None of this is OK. Punching a 12 year old or a, sorry, a 14 year old 13. boy. Punching a 13 year old boy. <laughs> In the side of the head because he said that he doesn't agree with your point of view. Not okay. And we know it's not like this is some skinny, lanky guy who like doesn't really have any muscles. This is a big beefy boy. Like this is a man, I should say, um, that is punching Wintro. And he's a sailor, so he's really strong. He works out all the time. And I don't think he held back. Like, I don't think this is a a light punch. This is a punch that knocks out Wintro. And first of all, I hate reading it. It's horrible to think about, but also I feel so bad for Wintro and all he can do is just retreat inside himself and think about saw. Yeah. <laughs> Ugh. I don't know. It's really frustrating. It's also ridiculous that Kyle feels that this is the best way to make someone learn a lesson. Violence is the way.
0: Going into the next chapter, even like he's defending himself, of course, to both Kefria and Ronica. And he's like, well, he has to learn right away to obey me because I'm the captain on the ship. You know, otherwise he could get killed out there. It's like you're close to doing that yourself. Yes.
1: Yeah, it is. I don't know. His point of view is really interesting. I won't talk about next chapter until we get there, but it just is really sad. And it's sad that we have to have Wintro be like, yep, I'm going to get hit. It's just fear of the physical. (laughs) I don't know. Not great.
0: Yeah, that's rough. This is the chapter that kind of kickstarts a lot of things. This one and the next one are kind of the catalysts for the rest of the plot of this book. So we get Paragon and Brashen kind of linking up again. We have Kennet and Sorcor's deal, which is hugely important to the rest of the plot. Yes. And then the decision that Wintro is going to stick with Vivacia and Althea is out. Yes. Here. So... Big, important decisions being made. Change of fortunes is the title. Pretty apt here.
1: Yes. I do really think that the book as a whole, we're now getting to a point where you kind of want to consume every single chapter. I found it really hard to put this book down after just one chapter like I normally like to do before do reading. It. Read um, read
0: more <laughs> and then just reread the ones right before. We'll get more context. (laughs) I know you don't like doing that as much, though. I just
1: forget what happened only in the chapter, (laughs) which I guess does make it hard whenever I'm like, I don't know when this happens. And sometimes it's literally the next chapter. But I like to be sure that I'm just talking about this chapter.
0: (laughs) But it's we're really getting into it, though. Yes.
1: Yeah. And it's really picking up. And you can kind of see now that we're at this point, 10 chapters in, why people like this series more than the I think the Fitz trilogies, I feel like there's more things in motion. There's more action going on earlier. I feel like at this point in Fitz's book, in the first book, we're still kind of getting background of Fitz's wit ability and why that's a bad thing, that sort of (laughs) generalness. Right, Right. Like there's just not as much action. Like there's no, I don't even think, is there a clear villain? In chapter ten of the first, <laughs> the first know. one.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure.
1: I suppose there's not necessarily a clear villain here if you're not a rereader either, but there is more like driving action going on. So, it's been very fun. I'm very excited for the chapters to come. Lots of interesting things to talk about.
0: Let's see, chapter nine is Fats Fices. Which uh, is chapter nine was the one we just read of this. Yes. So that's that's some action. That's, that's true. That's probably like the first like real big, you know, lady time was the chapter right before that. So we kind of get some more movement about the same pace a little bit. But this is like four different plots going on at once yes. rather than just a... Like a 12 year old.
1: Yes. (laughs) It's not just Wintro the whole time.
0: (laughs) A 12 year old saving some small dog or something like that, you know?
1: Although I will say, I feel like Fitz is more tolerable than Wintro, but I do like Wintro. I just, I don't know. Yeah. I feel like Fitz is less whiny. Which is pretty big because Fitz is the biggest whiner.
0: He is, though. He's 100% less whiny than Wintrow. <laughs> Wintrow has reasons to whine and so does Fitz, but, like, it's annoying to read either way. Yes. yeah. I just don't like reading young teens, I guess. Yeah.
1: Harry Potter. You know? Yeah. Yeah, But anyway. I like
0: those books, though. <laughs>
1: Anyway, um, if you guys have anything to add to the discussion or any questions on the theories we've brought up this week, please feel free to reach out to us on all of our social medias. We're at the handle isfitshappy on Facebook, Instagram, Reddit, Twitter, your favorites, Um, or feel free to message message us via email. I guess just email us is a better way to say that at (laughs) isfitshappy at gmail.com. And we will try our best to reach out.
0: Thanks so much for tuning in.
1: Yeah. See you next week. Now we're going to get into a little bit of discussion of what you guys have brought to our attention. Uh, first, we're going to start with an email from Kayla, which we got in regards to episode 118, where. Wintro is being told by Malta to come up.
0: After he's, you know, coiling rope in the bottom of the vivacia during the the funeral.
1: Yes. Um, Kayla is suggesting that perhaps the tone that Malta is giving him and the sarcasm is coming from the idea that Wintro should have known they were at uh, on the dock or at the dock. I don't know yeah. how to phrase that. They
0: were docking. Yeah. They were docked. Or, uh, <laughs> yeah. Close to, uh, close to the shore because, because she's mimicking Kyle.
1: Yes. And the movement of the boat would be different. So when you're out at sea, the movement of the boat is different than when you're close to the dock, which I have not been in enough boats to know, but I trust Kayla's word. <laughs> and so the idea would just be that, whether or not Malta can tell the difference, Kyle probably was complaining that his son, quote, that idiot doesn't even know <laughs> what <laughs> yeah. it feels like to be docked. Um, so she's potentially just playing off of that. She seems to take after her father and thinking anything that he says is right and also that people are below her. So,
0: <laughs> I mean, I think she also has some repressed. Anger towards Wintrow, not really repressed, I guess, but (laughs) she has some anger towards Wintrow, probably for like abandoning her because apparently they were super close before he left. Right. Right. And that was her like only her closest friend at the time. And he leaves and then all of a sudden she's alone with her baby brother and the only kid then. I don't know. It's probably some response to that as well, where she's not very happy with Wintro in general, because now all of a sudden he's back and taking attention away and blah, blah, blah.
1: Right. No. She's
0: also spoiled.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's, it's definitely a complicated relationship, but I do think that was a really good thing to point out because I didn't even think I specifically, I think was the one saying that, why would he know he's, right. there's no windows and. If you've been on a ship, you know that there's a difference. So, <laughs> <laughs> so just like Wintro, I am a land lover and <laughs> would not have known. And they, uh, they also make a really good point that it is some, just another way that Wintro is othered, that yeah, he is not part of the family in the way that they are. They're not, he's not a boat person, obviously. So I thank you, Kayla, for that. It was very interesting to think about.
0: Speaking of Kyle and his disdain for things, uh, we have a Instagram message from Amir talking about the thought of Chalcedians on the worth of a woman's word, specifically with uh, evidence from older or later books. Quotes, uh, I think it's Chancellor Ellick from Fool's Quest. He uh, this is quoted from the book, apparently. He says, But all know that a woman cannot give her word to anyone, for women cannot possess honor. Women promise, and later they say, I did not understand. I did not mean it that way. I thought those words meant something else. So a woman's word is without worth. She can break it, and always she does, for she has no honor to defile. And Amir says, I think that Kyle, while he's much less and than the people who quoted that, probably share a similar sentiment. So that's that's in regards to talking like Kefria gave her word that Wintra was going to go to, you know, the priesthood.
1: So and yeah, right, and-
0: him taking it back doesn't matter because Kefria's word doesn't matter.
1: Right. Because in the last episode, we did touch on how he said, yeah, you made that promise, not me. And I think it was, again, me who made the comment, like, why wouldn't he care? Like, why is that not a big deal? Yeah. Because apparently women don't have no honor. So <laughs> catch me out here making lies. I don't, I don't have any honor to defile. <laughs> Sorry.
0: <laughs> it, is a, it is a really good thought to bring up, though, because that is our closest. Those later books are our closest look into what Chalcedians are thinking and the Rainwild books as well. They... They really show the values that Chalcedians have in a way that we don't get in these early books. So seeing it in a diluted form in Kyle... Really compares the two and makes Kyle's torch of evilness dull a
1: bit almost. Yes. (laughs) But it it
0: does. You get where he's coming from with his values.
1: Right. Probably what he heard growing up and the values that were instilled in him by his parents. So it's not necessarily fully his fault that he thinks that way because no one has ever challenged his viewpoint. I mean, it seems like the only man in his life who could have done that was Efren and Efren has gone all the time. So he didn't really get to chat about women's rights. (laughs) (laughs)
0: And, and attaching onto this conversation, we have a comment on that episode from, oh man, I'm totally going to It's an Instagram handle, so it's uh, Nicholas, possibly. (laughs) Sure. Sure. Saying that uh, Kefria really grew on them eventually. Was very frustrated early on with the relationship and everything, but Kefria kind of grows into her own later, which I definitely agree with once Kyle's kind of out of the picture and she is forced to confront the dramatic changes that are happening in Bingtown with Ronica you know also traumatic things you know the the war that's brought there and everything she does change a bit and does right. become better
1: <laughs> really comes into her own yes yeah
0: yeah definitely
1: thank you guys for those comments and then finally we had a comment from ellen on facebook and ellen does not believe that amber knows what wizard is because later when she touches paragon to reshape him it is somewhat... Or
0: even before that, I'm guessing. Yeah. Before she reshapes him.
1: Just in general, whenever yeah. Amber meets Paragon, it is stated like she hasn't touched Wizardwood Wood before. Although it isn't from Amber's point of view. We don't ever get that. So we don't know if, you know, she really yeah. hasn't touched it or if this is just the biggest piece she's touched.
0: Right. But it does call into question then what... Why why is she so disgruntled at Elthea comparing her to Wizard Wood? Right. right.
1: And my first thought was, well, maybe it's because it's a freak of nature and she doesn't want to be referred to as such. But then I also was thinking, it feels odd that the fool would think of something mystical as a freak of nature. <laughs> like, I don't think that's something the fool would naturally yeah. think. But I guess that isn't the fool Amber. I don't know.
0: I think Amber suspects stuff about Wizardwood. And I feel like there must be something in, you know, the future, the visions that they have or something that just kind of throws a bad light onto live ships mm-hmm. in some way that it just makes that comparison unfavorable.
1: That's fair. Yeah,
0: I don't know, but that's a, that's a good call as well. I kind of just assumed based on just that reaction that Amber would have already known, especially Living in Bingtown for two years and working in wood exclusively. Right. I know it's a very closely guarded secret, but with Althea brazenly saying, like, you know, there's people where you can get a wizard word charm for if you know right. <laughs> if you know who to look for. I would assume that Amber would get into those conversations and with would those people. Would be offered yeah.
1: wizard wood by someone who wants something made. Who knows?
0: But maybe those small slivers don't really have anything, and an awakened piece is a lot different than just a, a hunk well, of cocoon.
1: No, because Amber has a silvered hand, so even right, if it's yeah. not awakened, I'm, she I'm would just know what it
0: is. maybe there is a difference between the two, though. Oh,
1: okay. So that's why it would be like. Yeah. Okay.
0: I'm just, a speculation. Yeah, sure. I know she has yeah. a silvered hand. Yes, can see the history of each piece, but I'm just wondering if, like, that might be the reason why she doesn't know for sure. And then if she has touched it before, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I don't know either.
0: Or maybe she's never had one privately and couldn't take off her gloves.
1: That's fair. That could be. I don't know.
0: It's an interesting uh, thing to bring up though. Cause I would have suspected otherwise.
1: Yeah. So good thoughts. We'll have to keep an eye on it some more. See what other hints there may be that she doesn't, if she gives any reasons why she doesn't like yeah, being compared.
0: Honestly, I don't remember much of Amber's thoughts and motivations and conversations from this series.
1: I remember her being very fool-like in that she's constantly muttering to herself about, did I make the right choice and yeah. choose the right path?
0: Yeah, there's a lot of that, but I, I, I don't remember like the specific things that she gives out that the reader can pick up on. Right. And I'm really curious of, you know, reading some of those things again and kind of fitting them into place in my mind. (laughs) True. Because I know there's a huge conversation of did I follow the right person like Wintro versus Althea.
1: Well, yeah. And she doesn't know about Wintro. So that's also part of it.
0: But she was looking for the nine fingered slave boy. Yes. That that was like who she set out to be the catalyst. And she latched on to Althea instead. Well. And then she sees him later and she's like, did I make the right choice?
1: Right. But she's wondering if she followed the right person before that and althea does disguise herself as a boy yeah yeah and i don't know like yeah, there's like a
0: bunch of things there i'm just saying like there's yeah that's yeah. there's big decisions that she has to make i just don't know the small things
1: right like we'll get there yeah <laughs> thank you everyone for reaching out it's always fun to hear from you guys and we really look forward to what you guys have to say next week